Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So this is a continuation of our weekly broadcast. We we try to broadcast every week, but sometimes something comes up. So we are trying to be here every week, it's just we have to coordinate and if we're not all available, we don't stream from time to time. So the object of this stream is to answer people's questions about their practice. If they're practicing in our tradition, that's the sort of support we want to provide, answering questions about practice relation to your practice of satipatthana vipassana in our tradition. But if there are other questions about Buddhism or meditation, we'll answer them as well if, if time permits. In order to give time to um, allow people to ask questions, we spend the first fi first 15 minutes of the broadcast in silence. There's no video feed of this broadcast uh, the idea there is that we're not trying to uh, distract with entertainment or visual stimulation. Uh, if you're if you don't have a question, or after you've asked your question, you can just close your eyes and try and be mindful with us. So pr we're purposely trying to keep this fairly low key and uh, in, unentertaining, but hopefully informative and spiritually uh, supportive. So if you have questions, you can start asking in the chat, and we'll organize them, and when the time comes, answer them. In the meantime, we'll do 15 minutes of meditation until uh, 3.15, starting now.
All right, we're back. So we'll go right into the Q&A session. Whatever questions there are, this is where we start to answer them. You can keep asking questions in the chat. Nothing but every from now on, the chat should only be for questions. And if you don't have questions, just close your eyes. We'll spend the afternoon meditating together. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. We strive to not experience birth again, but suppose we fail. How can I keep meditating when the mind and the body are not together after death? How does this process work? Will we keep noting the hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, thinking, without a body? Yeah, the process works as it always works. The The best thing to do is to practice now. Uh, asking questions like this is a bit, uh, a bit misguided because it's talking about the future. What will I do in the future? What tell, ask, Telling you what to do in the future, which isn't very helpful. Um, what you do in the future is going to depend very much on how you train yourself now. It's not as though you can just suddenly decide to be mindful because, well, now it's important to be mindful. You have to train yourself, and it takes consistent, repeated uh, training, which is why a daily practice is important. So I, I'd recommend preparing yourself for the future, not not that that's how you should look at it, but whenever you have questions about the future, you should understand that the best thing you can do about the future is to focus on the present. When you learn to live in the present, then when the future comes, well, you're present with it, no matter what it brings. As to the idea of, of whether there is still seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking without the body, then yes, there is. There are people who talk about having out-of-body experiences, in dreams, we see and hear things that are unrelated to the body. I have practiced daily for several years and have been to over 10 Satipatthana retreats. In meditation, after 15 to 20 minutes, my head starts shaking quite intensely and my breath speeds up, then stops. Any tips? I mean, immediately have you note those things. I'm not sure what tradition you're in, uh, whether it's this tradition or another tradition, but in our tradition, we rec we instruct people to note their experiences. So if there's shaking, note shaking, shaking or feeling, feeling. And breath as well, you can, if you note that it's going faster, you can so know it, say knowing, knowing. If the breath stops, well, then you should note the feeling, the sensation of not breathing. There'll be tension or uh, pressure in the body. 
Um, you should also note your reactions to it. Uh, I mean, something something about the idea that it happens after 15 to 20 minutes, the implication in what you're saying is that it happens every time, or it happens regularly, or it happens uh, on a schedule at, at exactly 15 to 20 minutes every time, or, some, or when it does happen. And um, so one thing I'd just have point out is the idea of a narrative. When you start getting the idea that something happens regularly or it is a thing that happens to you or something. I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't obvious in what you're saying, but just pay careful attention to the expectation that it will happen and the recognition when it does happen, oh, this is happening again and so on. And try and note what surrounds that. There can be some kind of complacency, liking or, or familiarity and identification with it. And so you, sh you shouldn't uh, pay close attention to the the mental activity that goes on around it. There can also be, of course, liking and disliking, worry, fear, doubt, confusion, all of, all of the hindrances. I mean, it's usually the hindrances that cause such things to persist and remain problematic. But if none of the above, then, well, you just note the experience. And in the end, of course, none of that really matters. The experience is just what it is. But when you apply the hindrances to it, then, or react with the hindrances, then it gets worse, or it becomes a problem because you've made it a problem. The experience is just experience. It comes and goes. It's impermanent, suffering, non-self. In walking meditation, is it okay to perform turning in either direction while walking? Should the forward motion remain constant and fluid between steps, or should one slightly pause after each step? So we turn to the right in walking meditation, uh, and the motion, motions should be discrete, meaning there should be a, a distinct beginning and end to each movement. When a movement ends before the next one starts, shift your attention to the other movement, the, the next source of the next movement, and begin the movement. So there should be a distinct beginning and end of each movement. There's no fluidity. We're trying to uh, uh, intentionally experience uh, discrete movements so that we can become familiar with experiences as arising and ceasing. So we want to be able to see the beginning and end of each movement. If you make it fluid, it's harder to see the, the arising and ceasing of things. It's more subtle because it appears to be one single movement. Even though it's not, it, it, it's harder to see that it's not. When I meditate and a thought arises, I visualize it. Should I label this as seeing or thinking? Whichever is clearer, it's fine. If, if Whatever takes your attention at the moment. If it's become seeing, then note seeing. If you catch it when it's just thinking, then note thinking. Sometimes when I note, I hear the noting in your voice instead of my own. Like how you might say thinking, thinking in your video. Is this wrong or acceptable? No, you should note hearing in that case if you hear it. 
or knowing, hearing is probably best, but you can also know knowing if you recognize it as somebody else's voice or as any voice. There's no voice involved, it's just a word as a label. It's a means of recognizing and reminding yourself. Once you're focused on the sound of the voice as being this person or that person, that, that's something different, you should note it as an object. I try to note informally throughout my day. However, as soon as I finish noting, thinking returns repeatedly to the point that noting thinking feels like suppression rather than mindfulness. Do you have any advice? Well, first of all, superficial advice is to say distracted instead of thinking. If you're thinking a lot, then you don't thinking repeatedly, then you're not distracted rather than thinking, just say distracted, distracted. Um, but as far as noting feeling like it's a suppression, we had this, uh, apparently there's a big difference, or there's, apparently there's a difference between the word suppression and repression that I didn't really get and still don't get actually. I mean, I don't think either suppression or repression are real from a Buddhist perspective. It's not actually a thing that, that happens or exists. Uh, it's just a perception of what's happening um, and so that's the case here is that in any case where you think you're suppressing or it feels like you're suppressing well that's all it is it feels it actually doesn't feel like that there's a feeling and your perception of it is that that feeling is suppression so it doesn't feel like suppression because suppression isn't a thing that feels like anything suppression isn't a reality there's only the feeling so whatever feeling that is, you should note it. It's often a physical feeling that, that, that results, often results from hindrances or, or whatever. But just note that physical feeling. If you feel tense or pressure or a headache or something, all of those things can arise in the practice. Again, we're not trying to stop them or, or fix them or anything. Just try and be mindful of those. Just not thinking, or just not feeling, or pressure, or if there's a headache, not aching, or whatever. Do you have any thoughts on self-sabotage? I think I very easily fall into it. Is it something that can be overcome through mindfulness alone? self-sabotage it's a bit vague um what would self-sabotage be where you tell yourself you can't do something where you discourage yourself you convince yourself that you're not capable of doing something so it can be involved with low self-esteem i mean ultimately it's going to be a, a um, accumulation of thoughts uh, emotions reactions um even physical experiences as well, but all of these things are just aspects of experience. So something like that you might call self-sabotage is a habit. It's a chain of, of mental activity that we become accustomed to. So if you if you notice that you easily fall into some some habit, uh, that that's uh, a chain of mental activity 
that you become accustomed to, you become familiar with, you become liable to become inclined towards. And that's how the mind works. The mind becomes habitually inclined to whatever it, it however it uh, acts, whatever activity it gives rise to becomes habitual over time. That's a, a easily observable quality of the mind. So does mindfulness help? Well, how does mindfulness help? Because mindfulness is a different sort of mental activity. Mindfulness obviously isn't an activity that you might call self-sabotage. It's something completely different. There's no self-sabotage involved. There's none of the mind states involved that might be considered self-sabotage. So it breaks up that habit. It changes that habit. If during the time when you are engaging in what you might call self-sabotage, you are mindful, then you're changing that habit. You're cultivating a different habit, one of objectivity, clarity, um, wisdom, mindfulness. And so the results turn out quite differently and your habit changes. It's basically how mindfulness works for all things. Sometimes I don't know what kind of feelings pop up. Like, I say to myself, rising, falling, thinking, angry, and I get overwhelmed by my feelings and emotions. I don't, so I don't know what to say when I meditate. Do you have any advice? You can note overwhelmed. In the beginning, that's common. I don't know if you've done our at-home course. If you're interested, you might follow the link at the bottom of the page and find the link that goes to our at-home course and you know, if you've read our meditation, you've read the booklet, obviously, or you know how, how we practice. Uh, if you've already done the at-home course, maybe find a way to do an intensive course. But um, because because your your ability improves, your capacity to weed out the or to separate out the experiences into discrete experiences to note gets better. So you become less overwhelmed, you become quicker, sharper, and of course your mind quiets down as a result of sorting everything out, as a result of simplifying your habits and so on. Um, so you know, generally this, this sort of problem is a beginner problem, not to insult you by calling you a beginner, but it's, some, it's something that goes away over time. You become less overwhelmed as you get better at it. So I'm certainly not saying that this means you're not good at it, it just means that... Uh, you need to practice more. There's nothing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with what you're experiencing. It's a part of the course of practice. So just be mindful, overwhelmed, and note all the disliking of it and so on. Worry about it, fear, or whatever. I tried to keep my mind in the present moment. Wandering thoughts popped up and I followed them. I did have some good ideas for my work, but I lost the present moment of mindfulness. Why did this happen? Habit. It's just habit. It's not. It's part of what we call non-self. You're not in control. You you tell yourself to be mindful, but well, that's not how the mind works. It doesn't just do what you tell it. Um, and involved in there is the uh, interest, which perpetuates habits. So you got some good ideas for your work. Well, probably at the time you thought that's what you were doing as well. And because you thought of it as a good thing, you perpetuated it. 
and you're, it's very hard to be mindful when you're inclined in a different direction. So the, the skill that you have to develop is objectivity so that you aren't uh, enjoying the thinking, so that you aren't liking the ideas that come up and excited by them and caught up by them. I mean, the best thing is, of course, to leave your work behind and do a meditation course so that you aren't uh, inclined to enjoy thinking about your work, especially if it happens repeatedly all day and you know you, there's nothing you can do about it because you're not going to work. So you'll start to see the habits for what they are and, and well, you'll start to see them as less um, beneficial than you thought and they'll be better able to stay in the present moment. I mean, it's, it's hard to fully commit yourself to mindfulness when your ambitions and uh, inclinations are include things unrelated to the practice. So to some extent, it's just something you have to live with. Your mind is inclining in multiple directions at once. You want to get better at meditation, but you also want good ideas for your work, for example. In my vipassana meditation, I get more tense and distracted, which can last the whole hour. Also, I can't calm myself anymore. Can I do something about that? So again, first of all, uh, try to recognize the narratives that you build, like, this happens to me regularly. But I, why I say this is because it's important to be present and stay in the present. So don't have any expectations about what might come or or dread about what might come. You have to note that if it arises, if there's worry that, am I going to get tense and distracted again? And then, when, of course, that leads you to be tense and, and distracted. And when it comes, then you say, oh, here it's happening again, and it makes you more tense and distracted. So don't let these narratives arise. Don't go into it with any preconceived ideas of what might happen. Try and always come to it with a fresh and open mind. Now, that's not, of course, going to stop you from getting tense and distracted necessarily, but it certainly will help, and it'll help give you perspective on it so that when it comes, you're not reacting to it like, oh, no, not this again, for example. Um, uh, the idea that there's some problem with you not being calm is an issue. So what's happening here is that you have the idea that you can, you should be able to calm yourself, which is not true. We cannot calm ourselves. Um, there is the possibility for the mind to engage in certain activities that can be temporarily calming. Um, but having an inclination to try and and evoke those states is going to be problematic in, in at least two ways. One, in that it leads to trying to control your mind, which is you know, further in identif identification, ego, self-control. It's bad. It, it, of course, leads you to be more tense and distracted. It leads to greater stress and obsession, expectation. And it's unhealthy. It's, you can see that it's actually causing you stress and suffering. And the other is the desire the desire for uh, calm is going to make you disappointed when it doesn't come. 
is going to make you addicted to it when it does come, so you like it and you say, oh yes, here I am, now I'm meditating. There's liking involved. So you have to be mindful of the liking as well. You have to be mindful of the wanting. You have to be mindful of the disliking when you're not calm. Making yourself calm is not mindfulness practice. It's not vipassana meditation. So I might venture to say that you're not actually practicing vipassana meditation if you are trying to calm yourself, if your idea is that you should calm yourself. I mean, that's the whole reason for calling it vipassana meditation, because the intention is not to calm yourself. That's specifically why we call it vipassana and not samatha. That's why we make that distinction. It's not that it's not as meditative as samatha meditation. It's that the focus is different because the objects are things that are uh, unpredictable, inconstant. Uh, it can't really lead directly to calm states of mind. So there's nothing wrong with being tense and distracted. There's nothing wrong with being calm. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you can't calm yourself. What's important is that you're mindful of all these things and noting your reactions to them as well. I don't know if you've done our at-home course. I don't know which tradition of Vipassana you're doing, but you might consider finding more, finding out more about our tradition and doing one of our courses. Maybe that will help. When sensuality arises... Different images and thoughts arise in my head. As I note seeing or thinking, they disappear and reappear rapidly. How should I switch between noting them and the stomach? Well, there's lots of things you can note distracted, distracted, restless. Um, but try and when you note, after you've noted something and it goes away, just try and go back to the stomach. If something takes your mind away again, just note that. I mean, there's no magic correct way of doing it you have to understand why are you doing it what what is the noting for it serves a purpose it's for cultivating habits of of clarity and evoking states of clarity and and objectivity wisdom mindfulness so it's a it's a training it takes time it takes practice and eventually you'll be able to sort things out and you'll get a hang at the hang of it and you'll get better habits of cultivation of, of mindfulness. So I wouldn't worry too much about doing it right or wrong or whether you're doing it the right way or the wrong way. Um, to some extent, you can well, you'd be a little bit flexible about it. There's no perfectly right way. Just as a rule of thumb, try to go back to the stomach after you've, what you've noted has disappeared. Any tips for keeping the focus on the breath? Well, we don't focus on the breath explicitly in our tradition, nor do we try to keep the focus on any one thing. As I just said, we well, we start by noting the stomach. When the stomach rises, we say rising. When it falls, we say falling. And then when something distracts us from that, we note it. Once that thing that we've noted disappears, we go back again to the rising and falling. Or if it's something that's persistent but not ethically charged like it's not distract it's not making us upset or anything then we just note it for a few times and then just go back but i don't know if you've read our booklet or done one of our courses you might look into it if you're interested is it wise to meditate in a cold isolation tank is warm better no no, neither of those things is wise. There's no wisdom involved in that. 
There's no benefit to that, not from a perspective of mindfulness. Again, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to be how to practice, but you might look into that. Well, I mean, I, sh I guess I should explain myself. The, see, the thing about mindfulness is we're trying to understand and see clearly the nature of experience. So depriving ourselves from experience doesn't do any good. I mean, it doesn't technically do any harm. It's just, see, what does do harm is the intention to limit your experience. Now, you could argue that limiting experience makes it easier to focus on, say, mental experience, because, of course, you, there's no isolation from mental experience. But uh, honestly, I would argue that that's, uh, well, it's a crutch, so it's something that might help temporarily, but it's certainly not necessary. There may be extreme cases where it's for someone who has extreme attention problems that maybe in the beginning it's helpful or useful, but there's really no reason for that. And the desire to limit and the desire to make it easier is going to be problematic. So you're much, you're always, almost always much better focusing on or, or uh, making use of, putting yourself in a position to experience reality in a mundane, ordinary way without any sort of change or, or setup. Before meditation, they say, relax your muscles. I don't understand how to. I sit in a comfortable position, but get uncomfortable less than in one hour. Any advice? So I don't know who they are, but they are not us. In our tradition, we do not say that and would not teach you to do that, would in fact tell you not to try to do that. Um, we, we're not really focused on even sitting in a comfortable position. Uh, we're certainly not focused on trying to avoid discomfort. And none of that is to say that discomfort is is desired or sought out. But just like comfort, it's not um, something that we avoid. So again, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. I'd recommend you do that if you're interested in the things that I'm saying. And maybe look into signing up for our at-home course. I mean, none of those things are a part of it. The problem with that is that um, it creates a partiality towards relaxation. And then, of course, when you're stressed, it makes you upset, stressed, it makes you, when you're tense, it makes you upset and stressed. And uh, it leads to uh, an inclination to, con to try and control. So you try and make yourself, force yourself to be comfortable, force yourself to be relaxed, and so on. So rest assured, um, the fact that you don't understand to is not a problem, because it's not something you should do. I would say it's not even really something you can do. Not not um, not with any um, not with any certainty. Now certainly sometimes relaxation can occur, but it's not something you can force. Uh, regularly. Otherwise, there'd be no need to meditate. You just say, okay, I'm going to relax my muscles, and poof, they're relaxed. That's not how reality works. What you start to see through mindfulness is, in fact, that it's non-self. And, and not only is it non-self, clinging to it as self and trying to control it leads to only to stress and suffering.
For progress, one needs to study and practice. In terms of studying, how should one go about learning Buddhism? Does one need to have a lot of intellectual knowledge to reach Nibbana? No, one does not need a lot of intellectual knowledge to realize Nibbana. You, you need very little intellectual knowledge to reach Nibbana. It's, you need a lot of practice, uh, but you need right practice. So to the extent that studying provides you with right practice, that's the extent that you need to study. How should you go about it? Well, there's two ways to go about it. One, you can study everything, the whole of the Buddha's teaching, read all the suttas, read the commentaries, read the Visuddhimagga. Or you can uh, just read what's, what's, just study what's just enough. So what's just enough is the four satipatthana, really. I think it's fair to say that if you study the four satipatthana and learn how to practice them, then you've really got enough. I mean, there are a few other things that, of course, are going to be important, like learning about morality and concentration and wisdom. But, you know, the Buddha said, if you know that nothing is worth clinging to, that's all you need to know to start. So if you can get that through your head, it doesn't mean you have to know it on a on an ultimate level, but you understand that that's the doctrine, then you know what this is all about. Nothing is worth clinging to. That's about it. Um, I guess what we normally teach people is the three characteristics, so impermanent, suffering, and non-self, if you know about those things, and then the four foundations of mindfulness. That's about all you need. Does meditating every time you feel bad create aversion to the bad feelings? Or does the mindfulness perhaps outweigh the negativity of whatever encouragement you are giving the aversion? Why would that be encouraging aversion? I mean, I don't recommend that. You, the thing about meditating every time you feel bad is that it creates a kind of again, sense of control. I'm going to try to stop the bad feelings. I feel bad, so I'll meditate to get rid of it. And that's not what meditation is for. Meditation is for seeing clearly, and that includes bad feelings. Um, you know, certainly when you feel bad, meditating will be a good thing, but the idea that you're only going to do it when you're bad is suspect. You're, you're again, giving this idea that you're going to somehow use it like a weapon to stop the bad feelings. You know, if you're not mindful when you don't feel bad, and it's not going to help you much when you do feel bad. It's not really how it works. But how mindful, how meditation should ever give encouragement to aversion? I don't, I don't understand your logic or reasoning. Like meditating when you feel bad. Why would that create aversion? I guess to some extent it could, because again, you're trying to get rid of it, but it doesn't create it. It's already there in your intention to try to get rid of it. When you'd say, I'm going to meditate to get rid of these feelings, you already have the aversion to the bad feelings. So mindfulness, in fact, fixes that, because instead of uh, having aversion to try to get rid of it, you are trying to just see it clearly. But uh, the idea that it should somehow encourage the bad feelings doesn't make any sense. You should be mindful when you have bad feelings. You should be mindful when you feel good also. That's the only way to proceed.
What is a way of letting go of bitterness? The feeling of bitterness, the thought of bitterness, the practice of bitterness. What is an expedient way of letting these things go? Well, important that you understand what letting go means. Letting go doesn't mean making disappear, which should be obvious, but kind of isn't, because when we say letting go, we really mean how do I get them. So be clear what you mean by these. That helps you understand what is the practice towards letting go, because the practice towards letting go of anything is never going to be making it go away. Letting go means it still might come up, but you don't react to it be clear about that so you might still feel bitter once you've let go of it i mean honestly once you've completely and perfectly let go there's no bitterness of course because bitterness is a kind of clinging but still once you've let go of the bitterness it doesn't mean the bitterness doesn't come again or 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 goes away at all and and it's not even so much about that being the reality it's that that needs to be your mindset if you really want to let go you have to be of the mindset that i am not trying to make this thing go away I'm trying to see, in fact, that it has nothing to do with me whether it comes or goes. The practice is to see, in fact, that it's not you, it's not yours. It's something that arises and ceases based on causes and conditions, habits, and so on. And when you start to see it like that as an impersonal thing, then the mind starts to let go. It, it, it changes its perspective. So rather than identifying with it and reacting to it and getting upset with it and needing for it to go away and so on, or clinging to it and wallowing in it, or, or so on, um, the mind simply lets go and watches it arise, watches it cease, and that's it. So mindfulness is really the way of letting go. Mindfulness leads you to see clearly. Seeing clearly lets you to not cling to it, not try and make it come or go or fixate on it in any way, and so it comes and it goes, and it eventually loses its uh, hold over you, its power over you, and it loses the energy that you feed it. For a few months, I have been learning to sit upright without support. I have to adjust my position very frequently. Should I continue to find another position for sitting meditation? Oh, just be mindful when you have to move. Try and be mindful of what makes you move. It just takes time. Just be patient with it. There's no, I mean, there's no problem there. We're not concerned about that. Just be patient. Do you have any advice for having a need to properly express oneself or to come off a certain way? To be understood? I imagine this is a pretty difficult attachment to overcome completely. Hmm. To 
be understood, to come off a certain way. I understand that the 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 desire to have people think of you in a in a certain way, but desire for desire to be understood as a person. In other words, for people to react favorably towards you. Yeah, I can understand that. So yeah, that is a big one. I mean, it really revolves around self-esteem, which which really boils down to attachment to self. Um, this idea of our of our worth. It's important that you start to give up the idea of self-worth. Buddhism doesn't teach us to think of of ourselves as having great self-worth. Right? They, they, like this this teaching that's drilled into us to tell yourself that you're special, to tell yourself that you have worth, and so on. Except to the extent of, of understanding that you are competent. I mean, there should be reassurance of your ability. But even that um, isn't, shouldn't be something you, you cultivate artificially. Eventually, there's, you let go of self, and there's no question of whether you are competent or capable. Yeah, there's no worrying about whether you're going to succeed or fail. There's certainly no worrying about whether other people, how other people are going to, um, how other people are going to perceive you. But yeah, this really does come. It's one of the results of mindfulness that you stop clinging to the idea of self. So it's important to understand that in Buddhism, we don't have any conception of self. The the theory is a absence of any such perception of self that you start to see experiences as arising and ceasing when you see something that's just seeing when you hear something that's just hearing and so your perception changes and you don't have any conception of of me or mine and so when you notice how someone's behaving towards you there's no sense that they're behaving towards you as a, as an individual there's only a sense of the experience of of whatever it is that they're doing seeing it or you're seeing it or hearing it or, or whatever i mean that that is the the ultimate but in the meantime you 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 become less clingy about self less concerned about your image less concerned about people's perception which of course makes you a lot more pleasant to be around i mean it's it's self-perpetuating things get better and but the, the more you worry about self-image the less pleasant you are to be around of course what exactly is right thought from the noble eightfold path well if we look at right thought as as sort of leading on from right then we can understand that it's going to be all of the mental activity that arises so if you have wrong view then you're going to have perverse thoughts. And by perverse just means thoughts that are out of line with what is wholesome and good and, and righteous and, and just and true. Um, so the, the Buddha outlines like um, sensual thoughts, so, so desire for sensuality and uh, Ill, thoughts of ill will, hatred towards others or disliking of experiences. And then something called... Um, Uh, hingsa, right? Hingsa mitaka, sorry. Um, so, thoughts of harming others, but really, I guess, could be, con could be considered a form of delusion. 
It's the oppression of others. I mean, ultimately comes down to thoughts that are involve greed, anger, and delusion. But you know, looking at it from a meditative point of view, it's how you how you perceive reality is going to change the mental activity, how you react to it. That's basically what's going on here. So right view is the, the base of mindfulness practice. It may not seem like a view or a belief, but it is. Every moment you say to yourself, seeing, you're creating a view in that moment, and you're, you're, you're augmenting your view that seeing is seeing. And that is a view in and itself. You know, seeing isn't me and mine and this and that. It's a much more pure and objective view than any kind of perception of, of reality. So as a result, the thought that comes from it is pure as well. There's no judgment or reaction, clinging. After 40 minutes of sitting meditation in full lotus position, my legs become numb. This is an obstacle to sitting longer, and I wish to do many hours. Should I sit through the pain? What can you advise to overcome this? Right, a few things there. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to be mindful, so there's a lot of things I can say here. Um, first of all, Generally speaking, sitting through pain is okay. So you just be mindful of the pain. Pain is great as a meditation object. It's not something you should seek out, but it can be a great teacher. It shows you how you react to things with disliking. Of course, extreme pain can lead to injury, so you do have to watch out for that. Sometimes if there's very strong pain, you have to ease off uh, in certain cases. Um, so I don't know if you're actually even doing our meditation practice, but in our tradition, we don't recommend doing over one hour of, of sitting, but it's for another reason. It's because uh, there's a benefit in changing of postures. There is a benefit for physical health, but there's also a good benefit for mindfulness and mental health. The change will do you good. It's It's helpful to switch things up a little bit and make your mind more flexible anything that you any sort of inertia can be problematic because it can make you inflexible and and reliant on a certain state so we do recommend we we definitely well we instruct people to do half walking and half sitting so i'd recommend that if you want to do many hours that's great but it should be walking first for up to an hour and then sitting for up to an hour try and do half and half the other thing I would say is we don't recommend doing the full lotus position because this practice is not samatha practice. So there will be stresses and tensions and movements of the body, and and as a result, it can be often untenable to stay longer than say forty minutes in the lotus position. We recommend what is called the Burmese position, probably because of traditions like ours that taught people to practice in. A little bit differently different position but it's in our booklet there's an image it's just with the heel of the front foot touching the, the shin of the back foot in a cross-legged position um, the fact that you wish to do many hours is something i might point out that wishing is a form of desire so be careful about that there's no benefit to sitting many hours there is benefit to meditating many hours but um we recommend, do, again, doing walking and sitting. And yeah, don't focus on the hours, focus on the moment.
I'm sure you get this a lot, but I quit smoking today, and I was wondering if you have any advice on keeping strong. No, I don't know if I've gotten much questions like that. I know I have gotten questions, smoking questions in the past, but I'm not sure if that particular question has ever come up. It may have something like this. Um, yeah, well, mindfulness, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's a great way to stop smoking. It's certainly a great way to stay strong. Smoking is not so hard for someone with mindfulness to give up because it objectively is a fairly gross and unpleasant habit. Uh, so if you're if you're mindful, and as you're more mindful, you feel a sort of the, sort of an aversion almost to the, to the smoking because it's nauseous. It makes you nauseous, and it's it's um, unpleasant in the in the throat and so on. So just what what you would do to stop smoking is you'd be mindful of the experience of smoking, which helps you become less uh, intoxicated by it. But um, once you've already stopped, if you're not smoking at all, really all you have to deal with is the craving. Now there's going to be craving, the desire for it. There is going to be the memories of it. So there will be memories of the taste and the smell. And when you do smell it, there will be it will be a trigger for more desire. So you have to be vigilant about all of those things. Be vigilant about the desire you want to smoke. So say wanting, wanting. Um, you smell smoke, you know it's smelling, smelling, and you like the smell of the smoke, say liking, liking. When you think about smoking or worry or or, or uh, you're afraid of the desire to smoke, those are those are other things that are going to arise. So you want to smoke and then you, you're afraid, oh, maybe I'll go back and you start to worry about being weak and so on. And you have to note that as well, worrying and afraid. And any thoughts about it? I mean, ultimately, it's 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 nothing different from any other mindfulness practice. And so, I would say, if you take up the practice of mindfulness, you'll see it's not so hard to really just give it up for good. So I recommend reading our booklet. You can do the at-home course. You can do our intensive courses once you've done that. All of it's free. We're not here to make money. I'm not plugging something as though you're going to pay me for it or something. This is just serious, honest advice. There's no. It's not a benefit to us. It's a benefit to you. And well, what's a benefit to us is, well, anytime anyone does good things, that's a benefit to them. So as a part of our practice, we do good things for others. That's why we're here. That's why Chris is here. That's why I'm here and Jim and all of our volunteers and community. Thank you, Bante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Thank you, Chris, for your help and Jim as well. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. I see we have a lot of questions. It looks like maybe a lot we didn't get to. I'm surprised today, a lot of questions. So if your question didn't get answered, well, you can come back next week and ask it. We also have a channel on our Discord server. If you go to go to the link on, on the page, on this screen and find somehow the link to the Discord server, you can find our Ask Meditation Q&A channel on Discord. And you can post your questions there anytime during the week, and we'll ask them live here. And again, we're focused mostly on questions regarding people's meditation practice. With special emphasis on those that need an answer for the spiritual well-being of the individual, curiosity questions and so on are considered lower tier, lower priority. So again, thank you all for coming out. Wish you all a good week. A success in your practice and peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.